If we could find our seats, please. We're going to dive into God's Word. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And so if you are a guest with us, my name's Tim. I am also one of the pastor elders here, and it's my privilege to preach God's Word. We're in a series in 1 and 2 Samuel, and so we are so glad you are with us. 1 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to read the text actually in just a few moments, but title this morning is a farewell address, and I just kind of want to set it up a little bit. When you've got, you've got chapters 10 and 11, which is Saul's anointing and Saul's victory, or you might even say Israel's, uh, in their mindset, hey, we got it right. That's, that's the feel at the moment. We got it right. We wanted this guy Saul. Samuel's warning us. The Lord is warning us about appointing this king. Well, we want this king. Uh, We want to be like the other nations. Now we have victory. Look at us. We got it right. All right? Leapfrog over chapter 12, and what we'll, we'll be diving into beginning next week, chapter 13 and 14. Complete other end of the spectrum. All right, in in chapters 13 and 14, we're going to see, well, uh, Saul's failure in leadership, Israel's crushing defeat, and uh, things things couldn't be worse. All right, in between the two of those is chapter 12, Samuel's farewell address. All right, so that's kind of the setup. I want you to hear a little bit how Christian ended things last week, how chapter 11 ends with this high note, verse 12 of chapter 11. Uh, There's these guys who are questioning Saul's reign and, uh, you know, having felt the the vindication now, the the people want to, they want to take those guys out, all right? They want want to end their lives. And Saul steps up and says, no, we're not, we're not going to be killing anyone. All right, and then verse 14, Samuel says, let's go, and we're going to renew the kingdom. What a great, we're going to renew Israel. What a high note. In in verse 15, the end there of the chapter, uh, we see they, they make Saul king, and they bring offerings to the Lord, and they celebrate. And so you've got chapter 10 and 11, which is this mountaintop. You've got chapters 13 and 14, which is the bottom of the pit. And what we're preaching this morning is what's in between that sandwich. All right? Right there. One more thought before we read the text. Have you ever chatted with someone as they become more and more aware that their life is wrapping up? Words get more deliberate, more intentional. We'll all get there, and I imagine we will try to seize those moments and communicate clearly. That seems to be what Samuel's doing here in chapter 12, his farewell address to Israel. He wants them to know, deliberate, intentional, God is faithful. God is generous, holy, He's loving, he's a deliverer who's working out their glorious redemption, Israel, undeserving Israel. 
With that, I'm going to invite you to please stand as Christian's going to read to us. We're simply going to read at this time the end of, of chapter 20, uh, I'm sorry, 12, beginning in verse 20. All right, so go ahead, Christian. The Lord. And Daniel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this well. But do not turn aside from following the word, but obtain the glory with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot possibly deliver, but who are empty. For the Lord will not just let his people, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, I hardly wait for me that I should sing, sing to them the Lord by singing his praise for me. And I will instruct you in the way and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would now bless the preaching of your word. Lord, in the truest sense of the word, bless the preaching, bless the hearing, Lord. And may we as a church be built up in you through your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There's some other farewell addresses throughout Scripture. We might think of Joshua. You might have it as a magnet hanging on your refrigerator. Or maybe someone did some needlework for you. Familiar words, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was Joshua's farewell address. Paul calls together the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He pulls them together to have his farewell address. He says to them, I didn't shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God to you. Jesus' farewell address was with his disciples. We celebrated it this morning. He gathered his disciples together for the Last Supper. And in that Last Supper, he provided for them a visual sermon, if you will, that he explained to them that he will soon die for their sins. Pilate delivered a very brief speech, farewell speech of his own on behalf of Jesus when he said, Behold your king. That was a loaded statement in and of itself. Behold your king, he said, and, and turned Jesus over to be crucified. Meanwhile, Caesar was king at the time. Caesar is conquering. Caesar is subjugating people. He looks like a king. That's what kings did. All the while, Jesus is being crucified. And the people did ask, and we could ask, what kind of king has himself crucified? I thought kings conquer. I thought kings subjugate. Well, Christ the king came to conquer more than an enemy, more than enemy nations. He came to conquer sin and subjugate death itself. The king rose from the grave, bringing forgiveness and salvation to all those who come to him. Well, two times here in Samuel's farewell address, he's going to say of Saul, here's your king. Here's your king. Behold your king, if you will. Last week we heard about the shadow of the king, that salvation comes not from the shadow of the king, who is Saul, but salvation comes from the king of kings, who is yet to come at this point, Jesus. 
So today we come to chapter 12, and in chapter 12 we're going to see that Samuel's providing for them and for us three trials, three episodes in chapter 12. The first trial is actually Samuel. Samuel puts himself in the dock on trial. Samuel's speech begins by Samuel literally putting himself on trial. Let's read verses 1 through 5. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray and behold, my sons are with you. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed or from whom? From whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed as witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So what Samuel's doing there is he's putting himself on trial before the people and he's inviting the people, bring any complaint that you've got against me. Because he's lived and he's telling them that I've lived among you since he was a boy, right? He's lived here um, among the people. He's had a lifetime of serving among the people. He's had a lifetime of judging the people. The people know him. And so he's saying, look, you know me? And he does this really pretty interesting thing when he, when he starts to unpack, have I, have I defrauded you? Have I taken from you? Really what Samuel's doing here is he's setting up three contrasts. When he's saying, have I taken, have I taken your ox? That sounds pretty random, doesn't it? Have I taken your ox? Have I taken your donkey? Well, what did Samuel say of the king? He's telling them, you don't want this, this king that you think you want. Why? Because the king take, and he's going to take, and he's going to take from you. Have I taken from you? And their answer is no, you haven't taken. Have I perverted justice among you? Have I taken bribes from you? All this is verse 3. Remember, right? Because his sons had perverted justice. Okay, so there's episode 2 of, of just Samuel. And then he says, have I been, have, have I... Uh, been like the priests, Eli and Eli's sons, who were those worthless fellows who oppressed the people. Have I been in any point either of those three episodes? And in this, he's saying, I've not been like the leaders of Israel. I've not been like the prophets or the priests of Israel or like the kings of the surrounding nations or the, the one who you now have anointed as king over you. You've wanted a king. Samuel's repeatedly told them, you, you, you really don't want what you want. And the people respond, no, we want what we want. And that's really a good definition of sin too, doesn't it? I mean, the Bible just walks us through over and over again. You really don't want what you want. And in our sinfulness, we say, no, we want what we want. And so the trial goes on, and the 
people respond. We have nothing against you. All's good. Just because we didn't listen to your counsel, as far as the king goes, we, we didn't listen to the whole king thing, but don't misunderstand that, Samuel. All's good between us. We're good with you. The second trial is Samuel actually puts God on trial, and that begins in verse 6. Let's read it together. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, Then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Caesarea, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the land of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord. And have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel. And delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash the king of the Ammonites came against you. You said to me no but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. What Samuel is doing here by putting God in the dock is is to help them see. The trial here, putting God on trial here, exposes the people to the character and the activity of God. It exposes the people to the righteousness of God and the foolishness of the people. Again, verse 12, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. It's to say God on trial in that courtroom. We have found him to be not only right now faithful in in their lives. But Samuel's saying this is your history. This is your ancestors. This is, this is your story. The faithfulness of God, the character of God is a part of who you are right now. So putting God on the stand exposes the greatness of God, the ultimate king, who they already had at their disposal, and yet give us a king. Samuel's saying, look, you're going to find yourself in a really big mess soon. For us, it's the next chapter. And when you find yourself in that mess that I told you you would find yourself in, don't blame me and don't blame God. According to you, I'm clear. That's what Samuel's saying, right? And according to you, God is cleared of all charges. And that's where we run, isn't it? We run 
First of all, we, we, we find leaders to blame, and there's plenty of blame, right? It's an, easy, it's an easy target. There's plenty of leaders to blame. Leaders make the news every day. Community leaders who steal, school authority figures who take advantage of children, pastors who are immoral, government officials who lie and steal, employees who take, employers who take advantage of their employees, umpires and referees, doggone it, they're the reason why we lost the game corporations and all the rest, leadership's a problem. So we have 10,000 reasons to blame leaders, and if that fails, there's always the fallback where we can blame God. And Samuel will have none of it. He knows what's coming for, from, for Israel. Miserable Israel, right now they're rejoicing, end of chapter 11, miserable Israel will be looking for someone to blame. So he says, let's put me and then let's put God on trial here so we make this very clear. And it becomes an opportunity for Samuel to witness to the people the work of the faithfulness of our God. It was to tell a very small snippet of the story of God's covenant faithfulness to these very people. Faithful God, unfaithful Israel. God promised to protect and to bless Israel. It takes us back to Genesis 12, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, that he will have a people. And so he takes them and he takes us to the deliverance that God accomplished in Egypt. And he takes them through judges. That's what he's doing there in verse 11. And Israel called out to God in their oppression. And what does the Lord do? He delivers over and over and over again. Samuel keeps taking the people back to their folly. You knew, Israel, you knew that God delivered your ancestors. You knew that God is faithful. But you still demanded a king. I read chapter 12, and it's like, it's, it's like Samuel's doing this. He's shaking his head. Listen to the echo in the room. Verse 12. No, but a king shall reign over us, is what the people said. When the Lord your God was your king. Verse 13. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, let's make that clear, Samuel, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Look at the middle of verse 17. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Look at 19, middle of 19. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 25. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Echo, echo, echo. <laughs> As Samuel just... And it's the cycle of Israel. It's a cyclical problem. Right? God makes a covenant with Abraham. God is going to be the faithful, gracious, merciful God that he is. And the people begin to take that for granted, right? 
they begin to see, oh, God's faithful. Wow, well, we can just, since he's faithful, we can just go our own way, do our own thing. And they take God for granted. They abuse God's grace. Sloppy grace comes to the people. They begin to forget God. This then leads to God's gracious judgment. And in that gracious judgment, what happens? The people begin to repent, call out to the Lord, then repeat cycle, right? God is gracious. He's faithful. He's forgiving. They begin to take God for granted, right? They reject God. God brings judgment. They repent. God is faithful, right? And that's, that's the story that Samuel's telling. It is a small stip, snippet of the entire Old Testament. It's the, it's the story of Israel. It's the story of our lives. It's easy for us to read our Bibles or perhaps read our Old Testament and maybe join with Samuel and go, what is wrong with these people? That's not how we're to read our Bible. We're not to read it like Pharisees. We're to read it humbly and recognize the problem is not just Israel. The problem is sinful humanity of which we're a part of that. This episode here isn't just for our information it's for our transformation. We're to, to read this and recognize, oh, I can crawl into 1 Samuel chapter 12. So hear me, Trinity. It's not that we look at it and go, they just don't get it. It's an opportunity for us to learn we are them, but we don't have to be them. Sloppy grace comes to our lives too. Sloppy grace, when I say that term, it's when we know enough about grace to be dangerous. When we know enough about grace, we know that grace is something, I can't earn grace. There's nothing that you or I can do to add to our salvation. Listen, if we preach the gospel rightly and accurately, it's right that there'd be a tension in the room where you're feeling like, wait, did, did he get that right? That grace comes completely free, that there is absolutely no works that I could do in my life to bring about any drip of salvation. The answer is yes, there's nothing you can do. Like the Israelites, we begin to take that grace for granted. We begin to think, well, I can, okay, well, I can engage in this sin. I know God will forgive me. I've read my Old Testament. That's what the people were doing. I can engage in this lifestyle. I can, you know what? I've got Jesus in my pocket. I've got eternal security. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to be in heaven. All is good. I can live the way I want to live. That's sloppy grace, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous grace. You abuse the grace of God like they abuse the faithfulness of God, the grace of God in the Old Testament. So in this trial, Samuel's giving them a God history lesson as to say to them, on behalf of your elders, from your ancestors, we've got this record for us. 
And we have an advantage beyond that. We've got this record for us. That's what Paul is saying to the Romans when he says, Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days, what former days? What was written? He's not talking about the New Testament. It hasn't been written. He's talking about the Old Testament. For, for, and he's speaking to us, the church, for whatever was written in former days, the Old Testament was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul and Samuel are joining together to say, listen from your ancestors what we are to learn. God help us, church, from running to sloppy grace. In the name of grace, that we would run to the world. In the name of grace, oh, God will forgive me. If I can't do anything for my salvation, then I guess I won't do anything. Can I just be brutally blunt and this may even offend some it is as if we're spitting on the cross of christ when we say thank you for your grace thank you for your sacrifice thank you for your death on the cross and i'm gonna live like the world and i've got you in my pocket what samuel's doing here is he's saying let the character of god drive you to godliness and motivate you to activity rather than lull you into laziness, rather than lull you into taking God for granted. Grace wasn't provided for your worldliness. Grace is provided for your godliness. Christ didn't hang on the cross that we could then run to sin and say, well, he'll forgive me. I'm still saved. Christ died on the cross to not provide you worldly living. He died on the cross that you might run to his holiness. And I believe that to be the point of what Samuel's doing by putting God on trial. To help the people see the glory of the character and the activity of God in their lives and through their history. That they might turn to him in repentance and faith and service and worship of him. The third trial is he puts Israel on trial. As you might imagine, that's not going to go real well. Again, verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, from whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Wow. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Samuel and God have stood trial and they've been vindicated, but the righteousness of the Lord has been put before them, which leaves them exposed before the Lord. God is righteous. The people are not. 
So now as Samuel puts the people on trial, it's not pretty. And that's really the story of the Bible, isn't it? I mean, just in this one chapter, it just gives us a little picture of the entire scriptures. John Piper says of this text, he says, It was a spectacular sin for the people of God to say to their maker and redeemer, We want to be like the nations. We don't want you to be our king. We want a human king. That is a spectacular sin. Samuel calls it, verse 17, a great wickedness. The point here is to expose that God has always been and always will be faithful. He is the divine king. Remember your ancestors, guys. Remember the faithfulness of the Lord. Remember how they cried out to the Lord and he answered their cry. That's what a king does. And you're asking for a king. Their response, verse 12, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So hear the echo in the chamber of Samuel's incredulous disbelief. But even in the foolishness, see the grace of God. Judgment comes. Judgment comes. We think, oh, well, that's judgment. We've We tend to separate judgment and grace. They shouldn't be separated. The judgment is that rain will come in the wheat harvest, which isn't good. Wheat harvest is during the dry months. God's going to cause it to rain during the dry months, during the wheat harvest, which is to say, in the judgment of the Lord, your harvest is going to get wiped out. It will be destroyed. That is judgment. And it's what their sins have deserved. But be reminded again and again that the judgment of God is the grace of God. Praise be to God. Call it judgment. Call it discipline. Call it suffering. Call it what you might. But when the Lord makes our lives difficult, thank him. Thank him that he doesn't leave us to ourselves. Thank him that he is good enough to, well, for some Maybe you ended up in in a jail cell. In the kindness of the Lord, he put you in a jail cell. In the kindness of God, he's made our lives difficult. It's when he makes our lives difficult. Well, we have choice. But so often, well, if you're in the room, I presume you called out to the Lord. Or perhaps you're in the room and you haven't yet. You're here to hear you can call out to the Lord. Well, the last trial is Christ on trial. Verses 19 through 25, Christians already read it for us. In verse 19, they say, pray for us. That's what judgment does. It's a a good moment. Pray for us. Here's the thing. The problem in Israel, or for the Israelite, isn't the Philistines. They think it's the Philistine. They think, what's our problem? Philistines. What's our answer? We need a king like them. When you get the problem wrong, you get the answer wrong. All right? You get the answer wrong. Our problem, church, today, living in 2020, is not enemy nations. 
If you diagnose the problem wrong, you'll get the solution wrong. If the problem is the Philistines, then the answer is we need a king. But they had a greater problem, and so do we. If America's problem is enemy nations, then we need a military. Don't mishear me. I think we need a military. But understand, that's not our greatest problem in America. The greatest problem in America is the sinfulness of humanity. And so our greatest solution isn't bigger, badder military. Our greatest solution is for people across our country to fall on their faces before God and cry out to him. Because he's the king. Our greatest problem isn't this president or that president. Our greatest problem is we don't realize we need a better king. A better king has been provided. The Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a bigger problem. The bigger problem is sin. And praise be to God, he's provided the better answer to sin. To the greatest problem in humanity. We don't need a better president. We need a king. We need King Jesus. We need a savior. So their problem isn't the Philistines. Their problem is themselves. If you diagnose the problem right, you'll also get the problem, the solution right. Your greatest problem isn't perhaps a doctor pronouncing cancer. Your greatest problem isn't this suffering or that suffering or this temporary thing or that temporary thing. They're things, no question about it. Don't have time to build all the bridges. Your greatest problem is sinfulness. God has answered your greatest problem. King Jesus has come. He's the Savior. And so the, so ticking through these verses, verse 20, and Samuel said to the people, don't be afraid. I, actually, that struck me. I actually expect him to say, be afraid. <laughs> be afraid, guys. Be afraid. Um, it's beautiful grace here. Don't be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Verse 22 is so beautiful. For the Lord will not forsake his people. That's where sloppy grace can slide in. I hope you heard verses 19, 20, 21. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord. To make you a people for himself. Wow. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. These are great words from Samuel. But Samuel wasn't the king. Samuel, uh, uh, well, we'll see next week, Saul tries to step into the role of priest. Saul wasn't the priest. Saul will get rebuked by Samuel for trying to be the priest and by the Lord. Uh, Saul wasn't, wasn't the priest. Samuel wasn't the king. Saul, Saul was the people's king, 
but chapter 12 just leaves us hanging in the room that there's a king coming. That's what the farewell address does for us. It leaves us longing for an answer to humanity's perpetual problem. A king is coming, a Messiah, a savior, a deliverer, because God is faithful, because we are foolish in our sinfulness. Jesus is the prophet that Samuel could never be. Jesus is the priest that Eli and his sons could never be. And Jesus is the king that Saul, David, Solomon, and all the rest could never be. Jesus is the prophet, the priest, the king. And here what's left us hanging is, and he's coming, he's coming. Even Samuel, as much as he passes the trial with with flying colors, if you will, his character um, stands up to to the trial. Samuel might have godly character, but he's no savior. He can't can't even get the people to see you don't want a king. You already have one, much less actually save a soul. All of this leads us to a final trial, though it's not mentioned here in chapter 12. It just seems to be hanging in the room. You see, in the courtroom of God, God the Father stands as judge, and you and I are on trial. And friends, it's ugly. The pronouncement is from Romans, the wages of sin is death. This is what you and I, our sins, has earned us. We have an eternal death penalty hanging over our heads. In our sin, we are literally on death row awaiting the day. But for those who repent of their sins and place their trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, well, Christ enters the courtroom and he takes all blame upon himself. The righteous king steps into the courtroom. Tim is guilty. Christ is innocent. Christ says, I take your sins our sins upon myself. You see, punishment is demanded because of holiness. God is a holy God. Sometimes we think, well, God's a loving God. God is a loving God. He's a holy, loving God. And we start to just try to negotiate with God and say, well, If God's a loving God, he's just going to accept me. And in the end, I'm just going to be accepted and I'm good enough and all these different things. Listen, none of us is good enough before a holy God. So I don't like that God's a holy God. Well, you don't like God. For God not to be holy is for God not to be God. And so holiness demands that sinfulness is dealt with. Now you can deal with it. Or you can place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ that he deals with it. Christ enters into the courtroom. He goes on trial. And the verdict is, for those who place their faith in Christ, he's guilty of all our sins. He takes them upon himself as if he committed your sins. He's condemned on the cross of Christ because of our sins. And in his righteousness, he gives us his righteousness. Church, that is a glorious exchange. 
For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. On the cross, Christ stood trial. He was condemned. He was the verdict guilty. He took our sins as if they were his own. He gave us his righteousness as if that was your own. Praise be to God. Let's stand together. One of the responses, and I'll share this in just a moment after we sing, but one of the responses is simply this. Worship. Worship. So let's pause. I've got a few closing thoughts, but let's pause and let's lift our voices to the Lord.